there were food writers slash reviewers, in which I include myself, who were writing stories that included, very specifically, speaking to the chef, sitting down with the restaurateur. What is this place about? Tell me about Commander's Palace here in New Orleans. How did it start? Why is it called Commander's? What are you running? Who is your chef? Oh, you got a new guy named Emeril Lagasse back there? Sure, I'd love to speak to him. These were feature articles, and it's basically what I was uh, what I was involved with with Esquire for 35 years, in which I did the best new restaurants uh, in America for them in about 20 cities, 15, 20 cities. And I really wanted to not only give the uh, chef his best shot, or very often I'd say, as with a tasting menu, now do a tasting menu for, for me. Show me your, your best, the best that you do. Because I was never interested, although I did review restaurants for the New York Times Westchester County section as a reviewer, I was never one who would dare say, the service here stinks because I had one bad waiter. Or I was rudely interrupted throughout my meal, so therefore the service in this place is terrible, which a lot of reviewers tend to do. I would also not say that the sea bass was overcooked, so you could expect all the seafood to be overcooked. Don't order the seafood in this place. I would never do that because that's that's preposterous. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I have a special guest today. Many of you in a recent survey mentioned that I should have a food critic on Flavors Unknown. I reach out to renowned chefs, and both Chef David Burke and Chef Gabriel Kurther said that I should talk to John Mariani. Thank you, Chef Gabriel Kurther, for the introduction. This is episode 70 of the Flavors Unknown podcast, and John Mariani is my guest today. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and if you are new to the podcast, I have been working in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US, and every other week, I interview culinary leaders from around the country, sharing their authentic stories, failures, and successes, and how their cultural identity shaped their creative process. If you are curious to hear the behind the scenes from a food writer and food critic, Mariani is an author and journalist of 40 years standing. He has been called the most influential food wine critic in the popular press, and he is a three-time nominee for the James Beard Journalist Award. For 35 years, he was Esquire Magazine's food and travel correspondent. He has now his own blog, Mariani's virtual gourmet newsletter, and he is featured regularly in Forbes dining section. Hi, John. Welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. Good morning. It's good to be with you, Emmanuel. Thank you very much. I'm really, really excited to have you um, on the show. It's been uh, a while that I had the idea of, you know, bringing a different profile of a guest, you know, on on our show, and and I, I thought that's having a a food critic will be very, very interesting for, for the listener. Well, it's an interesting profession that, uh, as with any profession, there are good ones and bad ones. You know, for the listeners and I, the people that probably do not know all the details or all the differences, you know, we, we read articles about people giving reviews, you know, on like magazines or online. There is like, you know, like culinary guides, you know, that are well known around the globe. So can you tell us like the, the different types of food critics that, that exist? 
Well, they're expanding in new forms, but they're also, the old forms are getting closed off very quickly. As you probably heard, Savua magazine went out of business as of this week. We lost gourmet and bon appetit and food and wine are simply not what they used to be and don't do very much in the way of food or restaurant restaurant reviews is what we're really speaking of. And for all of those magazines, with the exception of gourmet, I guess I participated. But to go back in time, restaurant reviewing, you'll be happy to know, Emmanuel, goes back to the very late 18th century and into the 19th century when restaurants began opening in France, in Paris specifically, and right away, boom, there were guys who were ready to criticize, in, including a couple of guys who you had to pay to be in their, in their magazine, which is not unknown today either with the city magazines uh, around the country. Uh, you buy an ad and you get reviewed, and it's going to be a good review. But that's when it began. And throughout the uh, 19th century and 20th century, you didn't have too much outside of France, certainly not in the United States, of, of restaurant reviewers. But after World War II, when uh, America did have both a mass quantity of restaurants above the fast food level, let's say, in every state, in every major city, especially New York, Chicago, San Francisco, there was a requirement, a need for comment on what was being served in such places. And Gourmet Magazine was one of the very first. They had a New York reviewer who changed over the years, Carolyn Bates, for a long, long time out in California. And everywhere in between was covered by sort of travel slash reviews of the others. And then you had, starting with Clementine Paddleford and the later Craig Claiborne in the New York Times, strict reviewers. They didn't know it at the, t- that at the time. But Craig Claiborne established that he, w- he was writing about 150, 200 words, not really about stars. He would just simply say, here's a lovely restaurant on East 49th Street, and I really enjoyed the pâté de foie gras, and the wine list is such and such. Well, it became very, very popular. And was expanded so that Craig was going uh, two, three f- times to a restaurant before writing about it, supposedly anonymously, but he said he never made a big deal about that. He was known to everybody, and he said, I had one of those faces nobody recognized anyway. But he started giving out stars, a la the Michelin Guide, and I'm not so sure it was ever a good thing, but it gave the reading public an immediate guy, standard to go by. So there was, unlike the Michelin Guide, which has three stars, there, three stars, their top rating being worth a journey. We can get into the Michelin Guide in a minute. But Craig had four stars, which went range from good to very good to excellent to extraordinary. And that caught on in the rest of the United States. So that the Los Angeles Times or the Washington Post um, generally adopted some kind of rating down in New Orleans, the Times-Picayune News beans like in red beans and rice so they would give two three four beans or chili peppers in texas or something to go back to the michelin guy what people have to realize about michelin guys how it started the michelin name means tires uh, they sell tires yeah tire company yeah just by the world war one and very much after world war one when wealthy people who had big cars and chauffeurs, limousines and chauffeurs, would drive around France on their holiday or their grand tour. And the chauffeur chauffeur was, of course, responsible for keeping the car in good condition, knowing where there was going to be a garage in case there was a problem and where he could get new tires. And along the way, while he's getting the tires fixed, uh, changed, and people had to eat. So that's how the Michelin Guide 
began. Uh, it also, in those days, to be in the guide, the restaurant had to serve the dogs that the rich people in, inevitably had with them. <laughs> so I've spoken to the old chefs who did that. They said, we used to treat those dogs. So, so their one star meant a very good restaurant. Two stars meant worth a detour. So if you were in Avignon and a two-star restaurant 20 miles away, it was worth a detour from Avignon. Okay, Three stars meant a special journey, worth a journey. Get in your car and make a reservation and drive to this restaurant no matter what. Well, that's become a little more obviated by the fact that we now get in airplanes. And, and there are all those crazy people in the world who say, I'm going to eat it every Three-star Michelin sure. restaurant in France, yep. which is a, a kind of uh, a, a exuberant hubris that... Uh, An expensive one. <laughs> a very, very expensive one, and, and a kind of gluttony, which uh, I don't find appealing. So that's what Michelin was all about. And then when they branched out to other countries and to uh, other cities like New York, which has been doing for about 15 years or so, uh, there was more common because the Michelin guide would never say anything more and they had tens of thousands of, of hotels and restaurants in the Red Guide. Never say anything more than uh, good country cooking. Plus, they had all these little symbols of <laughs> guys in rocking chairs, <laughs> men's that place had a terrace on it, so things like that. All these crazy little symbols that you had to work your way through. And then it would always give, if you had a star restaurant, it would give three dishes which the restaurant was required to have on the menu at all times in case one of the readers dropped by. And that's how it worked. Now, it's no dirty little secret about Michelin, although I think it probably comes as a surprise to many people, that they don't have that many inspectors. You would think that if you have, just take the France Guide, which is hundreds of pages and thousands of listings, that they would require hundreds of inspectors, but they don't. I don't think for all of France, they have more than 20, possibly less. In Italy, they have about five. When they came to New York, they had five, but when they briefly had a Las Vegas guide and a Los Angeles guide, which they discontinued for lack of sales, saying that those people don't care about food. But when they when they when they published those two guys, they had five inspectors cover both Los Angeles and Las Vegas, Las Vegas. back and forth, <laughs> driving back and forth. Sure. How many restaurants can you really like visit a year? Plus the fact, as I once pointed out to, I've done several interviews with with Michelin, not inspectors, but the directors. I, I'd ask, I said, well, you know, in, in the United States, you have two different kinds of menu. You have the lunch menu and have the dinner menu. Now, if your five inspectors in all of New York are going for lunch, they may run into a menu that is nothing but a soup, a sandwich, and a salad on it. And then at night, they bring out the steaks and chops and, and baked potatoes and everything. So, you know, how, how could you judge it on the basis of that kind of lunch experience? I said, well, we go back. And we go back and we go back again. Do the math. How many restaurants could five inspectors possibly visit within the course of a year, including those restaurants which are impossible to get into before COVID, impossible to get into, uh, like a, you know, in those days, a per se or going way, way back, even a Lutece. You couldn't get in, into them for weeks and weeks. Consequently, uh, how did they do it? How did they get there so many times in order to give their, their ratings? So let's leave Michelin uh, alone and go to what 
what kinds of critics there are of restaurants. In the United States, you have weekly restaurant critics who work for the newspapers. And depending upon the largesse and the finances of the newspaper, like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Los Angeles Times, in the past used to spend very, very lavishly because they were money makers, those sections, and the papers themselves were making so much money. It didn't really matter to spend $150,000 just on expenses, New York Times um, restaurant critic. And if maybe Sheridan wanted to go 12 times to Le Cirque before giving it a, uh, a rating of, of, I think she eventually gave it three stars, not sure she gave it four. She could go 12 times. Maybe Sheridan once ate every single food item in Macy's over the course of a year. Every single food item. And then times paid for that. Or perhaps that was New York Magazine, I'm not sure. Anyway, that was the kind of largesse that they had. The, that is that is gone. Not that the New York Times is not paying Pete Wells when he gets back into uh, harness after COVID to go to a restaurant as many times as he wants, but he seems to indicate that he, like Adam Platt of New York Magazine and Tom Sietzema of the Washington Post, go, I would say, an average of three times to a serious restaurant before giving their ratings to such a place. And they do go anonymously, although many have just tossed that aside. Platt wrote a whole story about it. It's just, it's just useless. Um, so the anonymity issue is, is preposterous, always has been. Okay, so then you move to the weekly or monthly magazines like New York Magazine and Texas Monthly, and um, they do also a good job. And mainly their principal critic is, uh, again, is paid a handsome sum to go visit restaurants, nothing like the largesse of New York Times. But they do a good, fair job in, in that respect. And they use sub-reviewers who will be going to the restaurants, which would be described as anything from a mom-and-pop place to a hole-in-the-wall kind of place, which was the underground gourmet at New York Magazine, which was created back in the late 60s. Underground gourmet meant those kinds of restaurants that were not the the Caravelle and the Cirque type of restaurants. And so it started to splinter into different types of critics within those within those within those magazines and within their coverage and then there were the magazines like food and wine and, and gourmet who did uh, very very much the same but they're also starting in the 1970s and because the popularity of food writing there were food writers slash reviewers in which i include myself who were writing stories that included very specifically speaking to the chef sitting down with a restaurateur. What is this place about? Tell me about Commander's Palace here in New Orleans. How did it start? Why is it called Commander's? What are you running? Who is your chef? Oh, you got a new guy named Emeril Lagasse back there? Sure, I'd love to speak to him. These were feature articles, and it's basically what I was uh, what I was involved with with Esquire for 35 years, in which I did the best new restaurants uh, in America for them in about 20 cities, 15, 20 cities. And I really wanted to not only give the... Uh, chef his best shot or very often i'd say as with a tasting menu now do a tasting menu for, for me show me your your best the best that you do because i was never interested although i did review restaurants for the new york times westchester county section as a reviewer i was never one who would dare say the service here stinks because i had one bad waiter or I was rudely interrupted throughout my meal, so therefore the service in this place is terrible, which a lot of reviewers 
tend to do. I would also not say that the sea bass was overcooked, so you could expect all the seafood to be overcooked. Don't order the seafood in this place. I would never do that because that's that's preposterous. There's one late restaurant critic named Seymour Bridgeke who did his own restaurant guide, and the owner of the uh, wonderful owner, Leon Leonidas of the Coach House in Greenwich Village, said that damn overcooked sea bass was in four successive editions of Seymour Bridgeke's um, uh, newsletter. Every single year, that same sea bass from 1964 <laughs> was being reported on. And I think that's very, very unfair. So to fast forward to today, ma- many, most of the magazines have just gone by the wayside. They don't have the money to, to fund the kind of uh, stuff that I was doing for Esquire and other magazines where I had had expense accounts for it for Esquire alone, I think was upwards of twenty three, twenty five thousand bucks a year. Wow. New York Times level. But they were certainly paying for it. That is very difficult to accomplish uh, these days. Mm-hmm. So what has happened therefore is that the blogs have become uh, I don't want to use the word eminent because they don't have much eminence about them because they're simply anybody can write one. You don't sure. have any expertise. And yeah, blog and social media. Yeah, exactly. Now, when I started out back in 1973-74, I didn't have that much expertise, except by that time, I had traveled a great deal. I'd been to Europe, been to Italy, been to France, eaten the bistros, eaten the trattorias, gone to Chinese restaurants. Over. So I had a, more than an inkling. Sure, an experience in the background. Yeah, exactly. And that grew and grew and grew. So I was a much better restaurant writer, food writer. In 1980 than I was in 1975. Sure. Okay, and I guess yeah. today because no no budgets, you know, then then those new I would say writers we probably not have that opportunity, correct? To you know to visit different places or travel in different part of the world to gain you know experience and 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 skills. The New York Times does send, or in the past used to send its theater critic, its ballet critic its music critic, to London or to the festivals in Germany and uh, to La Scala once a year. That was, and certainly the fashion critic had to go to Paris and Milan and, and London every single year. That was never true of even the New York Times. The writer, the restaurant critic, reviewed 52 restaurants, 52 weeks of the year in New York. And occasionally, Mimi Sheridan would throw a fit and say, I want to go to Paris and eat. I want to go to to Rome and eat. But that was very, very rare. So much so that Pete Wells, who occasionally did go to Los Angeles and California, he stopped doing it because they uh, appointed a West Coast critic who appear occasionally to write about San Francisco and Los Angeles restaurants. But what you're saying, Emmanuel, is that, yeah, these people don't have the budget, but they don't have the background. So it's like, Somebody's saying, well, I've only really been to college basketball games. I've never had the wherewithal to go to professional basketball games. I've never seen an NFL football game or a, a, a baseball game, but I, I have covered college and high school. Well, that's just fine, but that doesn't mean you know a hell of a lot about the, the best that is going on out there and the, and the classic places. There's also a very strong argument to be made I think, and I'm still trying to get around to it, to go to places that are famous, restaurants that are famous for one reason or another. 
check out if, if a place like La Tour d'Argent is good or just a, a tourist trap. Maybe it used to be, maybe it now is not. But uh, to go to such places and to go to Alfredo's of Rome where they created Fettuccine Alfredo and to go to Hong Kong and eat at Manwa overlooking the harbor, these are things that restaurant critics wanted really to do. And now today's critics uh, and the bloggers who have never eaten at these places still riff on what French food or Italian food or Chinese food is supposed to be, or worse yet, talk about Peruvian food without ever having stepped foot in Peru, which I have not, which is why I don't write about Peruvian food. But do you think that today, Daniel, sorry to interrupt you a bit with the technology, you know, and with almost everyone being like a food critic, you know, with the Yelp and the Google reviews and so on, that people are more interested in the view of the crowd than the viewpoint of like one individual? Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if I were to look at some of the online trip advisor and so forth, the only things I might trust is if the service at a restaurant get really rotten reviews. I mean, if there are half a dozen people who say they treat you shabbily, that I might tend to believe. But I'm not going to believe a guy who says, oh, they put too much garlic in the frog's legs. Sure, well, it's too salty. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they burnt it. You no, know, they overcooked my steak. Well, that doesn't much mean anything at all. Now, the London critics, which are another form, another branch, an excrescence, if you will, the London critics are an interesting bunch. They are very good writers. They are hilarious. And they are mean. And they are expected to be mean, and they are expected to speak much more about who is dining there, what kind of crowd goes there. They are the suits, they are the people from the city, they are the social climbers. Or so it's more a social rating than a, than a food rating. Then. Much more so. Much more so. <laughs> and, and then when you said I expected to be mean, does that mean that they are paid to be mean then? Yes, they were, many of them have written about saying, I, I'm not really, a, I'm not a food critic. I'm a, uh, a social critic in going to these restaurants, which, by the way, they talk about expenses. The London critics get such a tiny amount to dine on. Many of them go once with perhaps one other person, don't even eat dessert. One orders the lamb chops and the other orders the sea bass. And that's it. That's what you get reviewed on. Me. He's talking about the uh, the Sloan Rangers who are coming through the door or uh, or whatever. And they can be savage and very, very funny. But it's I, I would not want to be a, a London restaurateur unless I was well-connected socially. How did you select, like, the, or do you select the topic of your article or the, you choose, like, the, the restaurant that you want to write about? Well, when I was a strict reviewer for the Times and then Q Magazine and some others, that was in Westchester County where I live now. So you would just say, okay, I did a Mexican restaurant in Port Chester last week. I'm going to do an Italian restaurant in Maronek this week. So you kind of mix it up that way. In terms of when I was doing the best new restaurants of the year and going to 15, 20 cities, I would depend upon my colleagues at the Times, Picayune, or the Chicago Tribune and say, look, I got four days in Chicago to go to the best new places. Where would you send me? You know? And uh, I'd spent two days in Austin, Texas, and three days in Denver, and, and so forth. So I try to do my homework before getting there so I wouldn't be wasting my time or, or the, the money that I had. So that's how they would be chosen. 
And, you know, there's um, talking to, you know, a lot of chefs, uh, you know, in on the podcast, obviously, you know, for them, food critic or the, the traditional way of food critics and, and probably the local ones carry a lot of weight. And, you know, sometimes they even feel that they carry too much weight that can have like a very negative impact, you know, on the, the, the long term business, you know, of a, of a restaurant. Mm -hmm. What's what's your thoughts on that? Well, I mentioned that the London critics are deliberately trying to be archly satiric and, and funny. So as I said, I wouldn't want to be a London restaurateur because uh, they're giving negative, very sometimes very negative reviews on the basis of very, very little. In terms of the American critics, I can guarantee you, with a couple of exceptions like Mimi Sheridan, whose own editor says, you have to be so mean. He says, you know, you're, you're really cutting these people, slashing at them. But other New York Times critics, including myself when I was in Westchester, I only did it for a year or so, but we were told if a place is that awful or a place you don't want to send the reader, don't write about it. Just you know, go eat there, see what it is. You say, Ugh, place is terrible. Don't write about it unless it's such a famous place like Guy Fieri when he opened in Times Square. The Times gave him a, a really rough review because you know how could you not review something of that publicly well-known. But by and large, if you went by, a, let's say, a four-star system, one star meant good, and you go to very good, excellent, and extraordinary. There were times when I would give out uh, two stars, and we said, whoa, wow, oh, you don't like that place. I said, did you read what I said? Well, I just saw you gave it two stars. I said, yeah, that means it's very good. Oh, yeah, well, I'll go back and read it. Unfortunately, that's the thing about the star system, Emmanuel, is that people look at that. And I'm sure when restaurateurs pick up the newspapers or the magazine, they go right in their eyes, shoot right to the stars. And if they get less than three, their heart sinks because they know that the public doesn't know the difference between two and three. And, and That's the problem of the scale. That's the problem of the score versus like like the the content of the article and, and, and the critical review. Yeah, right. I mean, if you take like Wine Spectator and Wine Advocate, they have a hundred point scale for their wines, but nobody ever, ever gets below, I think, 85 points on kind of on the same assumption that, well, if a wine's not that good, uh, don't even bother to review it. Except 85, that's way up there in the, in the scale. That would be the equivalent of like a two or three star restaurant. Did, did any one of the, the chefs that you reviewed in the past, my, Mentioned to you that maybe one time you went too far on your on your critic. Did it happen to you or or never? Never that it went too far. The most criticism I got from chefs is that if I did not include them, as opposed to excluding them, did not include them in my best two restaurants of nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight. Oh, your top list, you mean? Yeah. They thought they belonged that. Now, I would say to them if they would listen, look. We're talking about the 20 best new restaurants in the entire United States, okay? You're a very good restaurant. I enjoyed the hell out of your food, but, you know, I, I, I have to assess that there is excellent food in Denver, Colorado, in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I found this terrific place in Baltimore, okay? So to be at the very top, you had to be one of only 20. So I'm sorry you didn't make it, but that, those are the guys I heard from. You'd also hear from guys who say, oh, I didn't like my bread rolls. I, said, I just raved about your, <laughs> your, your food and your restaurant, your service. And yeah, you said you didn't like the bread roll. You, said you thought they were frozen. 
I mean, you know, okay, that's that's human. That's human. What would be your advice for, you know, people like leaving, you know, reviews, you know, on, you know, Yelp or any other online, I would say, platform, things that they need to keep in mind? Well, again, they need to keep in mind that despite what they have been told, that a one bad, three bad, six bad Yelp reviews is not going to put you out of business, you know, because there's many, if, if we were to take any restaurant right now, Emmanuel, let's type in Yelp or TripAdvisor, I would say that most of the, the listings there, and I don't know if that's this is the way they actually do list them, are giving four or five stars to these restaurants. There are dozens of those. Now, if you go down a bit, yeah, some guy gave it two, some guy gave it one, hated it, terrible, but those the, those are the, really the exceptions to those reviews. So I don't think any restaurant is being put out of business because of a pullback. Now, pe- people do listen, but they also listen to their friends. In other words, Manuel, I said, hey, hey, you've been to that uh, restaurant, uh, Shea Mariani? And you say, well, I didn't like it. My wife, oh, it's not that kind of food. Well, I'm probably not going to go because I trust you. By the same token, people are so fickle. Uh, and I've had this experience myself. People say, we're coming to New York. We want... Italian food, certain kind of Italian food. Let us uh, know where to go. And I say, go to um, Trattoria Emanuele. It's it's really, really terrific. And then a couple of days later, I say, hey, so how'd you like uh, the Trattoria? I said, oh, it's okay. And I, this is, I'm quoting this uh, from, from numerous experience. My wife just had a salad. She wasn't very hungry. And I just had a plate of spaghetti with red sauce. And uh, it wasn't all that good. I've had better. And, and I want to tear my hair out or tear their throats out and say, why did you even bother to ask me? Because that's not what my trattoria was famous for. Exactly. exactly. And people, I also find, look, you and I know there are a lot of people who don't like garlic. I hate I hate Brussels sprouts, okay? But I'm not going to judge a restaurant because it's Brussels sprouts, okay? We all have our preferences. I do know food critics, professional food critics who are paid by their magazine, who... Well, my successor at Esquire, the late Josh Ozerski, didn't like seafood or vegetables. He just said it. He was a meat eater. He'd eat a manifesto. And he would go to a restaurant, order a steak or a barbecue place or, and love the hell out of that. But he wasn't going to eat any vegetables. He wasn't going to eat no spinach and no bok choy. And there are vegan, not even vegetarian, there are vegan restaurant critics there is one notorious critic, I will only say in New England, who barely eats anything at all. And you say, come on, John. I said, no. If that fellow writes for a very prominent magazine, we're going out to dinner with us tonight. This is what would happen. We have an 8 o'clock reservation for four of us. He shows up at 8.45. Oh, sorry, I was busy doing something. Well, we're already into our through our appetizer. So he doesn't. So I'm just going to order and... He says to the chef, I, I just, just give me a salad or some chicken or something, which he proceeds barely to touch and has no dessert, doesn't drink the wine, has a glass of seltzer, and then goes back and writes about the restaurant. And there's a lot of those people still out there? I wouldn't say a lot. There are enough that their, their, their employers should be uh, ashamed of themselves. So there's a lot of things obviously happening in the hospitality industry, you know, at the moment that has an impact, you know, on 
the job of you know being a food critic. But yeah, how do you can't go to restaurants at all? <laughs> exactly. So how do you see the, the the future of the industry yourself? I wrote a story last May in my Forbes column and in my virtual gourmet, which if I may be a give a plug. If anybody goes to johnmariani.com, they can sign up free of charge to my weekly virtual gourmet newsletter, which has been going strong since 1996. But I can't go to restaurants, obviously. But back last May, when I wrote this article about the future of restaurants, which was probably the most best read article in Forbes of mine, certainly, had something like 115, 120,000 readers. It struck a nerve because I dared to say, Pache, be patient. At that time, everybody was saying the restaurant industry in America and France everywhere is going to die. 70% of restaurants were going to go out of business forever. And I said, hold your horses. First of all, you don't know anything about restaurant history, if that's what you believe. And I took them back again to 19th century France, 18th century France, which you may recall, Emmanuel. Maybe not. <laughs> um, <laughs> the restaurants of Paris did not do too well during the revolution because people sure. had their heads sliced off. And yeah. then in the in the 19th century, between cholera the wars, and yeah. epidemics, the Paris Commune of the 1870s, where people were reduced to eating uh, dogs and rats, and the rich people were literally eating zoo animals, somehow the restaurants of Paris always came back to life and got better and better. The real Belle Epoque is after the Paris Commune days. After all the, the epidemic, after then, World War One, France loses something like one-third of all of its male population in World War One, And then in 1919, get hits by, gets hit by the, uh, the, the pandemic. And yet in the 1920s, there was never a more vibrant time for restaurants sure. in France. I, I'm guessing that, you know, for of course, it's, it's hitting a lot, you know, restaurants because they are going to the face of closing and people are losing their job. But it means that probably there's as well, you know, in every circumstances, like opportunities, and there's going to be some, you know, other restaurants like reopening, you know, when the things are going to get a bit better. Well, both nature and landlords abhor a vacuum. So if you look at a block in which three or four restaurants have gone out of business, I can guarantee you, they will be filled within the next year by others willing to take a chance. Probably landlords are not going to be charging them uh, so much rent because they've been losing so much rent. People are dying to go to restaurants. I'll give you a case in point. My, my, one of my sons, both of my sons are in the industry. One of my sons is the uh, food and beverage director of a hotel, William Vale, in um, Brooklyn. Sure. And they want yeah. you know, stay there. Rough, yeah. rough time this past year. Shut yeah. down, reopen, shut down again. Uh, outdoor dining. Now, they only reopened under state guidelines again last Friday for Valentine's Day. And I think I'm getting the figures more or less. On Friday, my son said they did 250 covers. And on Saturday and Sunday, they did more than 350. And this is with having only 25% occupancy allowed. So are people going to stop going to restaurants? No. Are people dying to go to restaurants? Yes. Are restaurants going to have to react, change, as they always have? 
they always have changed. We, we go through trends. Uh, you know, if you go back in the 1950s, which was a golden age of restaurants with restaurant associates opening the Forum, the Twelve Caesars, and and uh, the, the Four Seasons, and uh, all of these, these marvelous theme restaurants with spectacular architecture and great decor and uh, winning novel, novel food. That has pretty much disappeared. But there are more restaurants than ever. And the real case in point is Katrina was what? Hurricane Katrina was 2005, I believe. That more than decimated the restaurants of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And yet, and they say, well, also, even if we want to reopen, all of our workers have moved out to Houston. Yeah, correct. We don't have anybody to work at our restaurant. Today, there are more restaurants in New Orleans than there were before Katrina. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me. Thank you. I mean, John, I'm I'm looking at a time. I know that you have a, a hard stop, so I have few like uh, rapid fire question, you know, for you. Well, I'll be back anytime you like. <laughs> Which is the one restaurant on your pocket list that you haven't visited yet that you would love to go to? That I have never visited. Or maybe you want to go back. Oh, well, well, I t- it's very, very specific. Um, Le Bernardin has long been my favorite restaurant in New York. It, yeah. Just for every reason of, of, of great food and elegant service and wineless and so forth. So last March, or early last March, I made a reservation for my wife's birthday, March 14th. And bada-bing, you know, COVID hit. Not only did I cancel my reservation, but Le Bernardin closed down. Well, now it's a year later. And I believe they have opened up. Um, I think even Le Bernardin may have been doing takeout for all I know, but they have opened up. So, yeah, March 14th. Um, don't call me that day because you know where I'm going to be. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, do you think that uh, chefs and restaurateurs are scared of uh, people like you? People like me at the restaurant? I, I, I really don't think so because aside from those I mentioned who take it out on me for not loving their restaurant without ever having written a single bad word, about it except for those i'm not going to write a bad word about you and tell you the truth and i've spoken to other colleagues we're going to be very very cautious about opening any wounds because we know these are favorite people restaurateurs a chef they are our favorite people because these people have suffered so much so i'm not going to go in there the way my my friend and colleague alan richmond at gq did after katrina he went to new orleans and rip them a new one so those restaurants are not very good and he took legitimate hits for how could you do that at that time when these two sure. were on their knees so when i go back i'm going to cut them a little bit more slack maybe even a good deal more slack because i understand what they've been through and getting back on your feet is not easy john thank you so much uh, for being a guest you know, on uh, Flavors Unknown, I really appreciate uh, your time and sharing your, you know, expertise. And, uh, well, you know, Manuel, I'll be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode with food writer John Mariani. Please follow us at Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Facebook and let us know what you thought about this episode. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify or subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. The guests on the next episode will be pastry chef Philip Speer and owner of Commodore in Austin, Texas. 
I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.